While they're making their way back to their seats, why don't you turn to Ephesians 4. We're going to be in 1 through 6 today. Ephesians is going to be our main text, but we're going to have to flip back and forth a little bit. All just kind of right there to the left a little, to the right a little. So as long as your fingers feel like doing some dancing, we should be good to go. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, let me read it for us. Paul writes and he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You remember last week, Paul had this kind of epic prayer there in 314 through 21. He had this amazing prayer. He gets to the end of it, and he says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think. And so he's praising God on the heels of this incredible prayer. And so he begins this passage, and what does he say? I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you. And so he's really had this prayer that kind of resounds in love. God, help them to love one another. And, and he kind of, he really drilled down and helped us, hopefully, to see the importance of, of having a life which manifests love. We've got to be totally sold out with this idea of love. We have to give ourselves to it. It's got to be the prevailing influence of our lives. It's got to be the overriding characteristic that people recognize as they see us. And so if you're bebopping down the street and you see Joel, you say, Joel, I, and I say, Nancy, what do you think of Joel? And she says, love. And I say, oh, Bill, no. And she says, no, not like that. I would say that Joel is a loving guy. What do you think about Steve? And I'd say, oh, Steve is a loving guy. What do you think about Siri? Siri is a, a loving lady. What do you think about Ken and Mitzi? Well, they're, they're loving people. The overriding characteristic, as Paul lays it out for us, needs to be this demonstration of love. Now, it's important because what he's going to ask us to do in this passage, it demands love. It demands love. You're going to see that in just a second. Look what he says. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you. You'll remember Paul is writing from a place of captivity. He has been arrested. He is in jail. And so he's writing to these Ephesians, this church in Ephesus, and he, he writes and he says, look, I urge you. Now, some of you, because you're especially nitpicky, you're going to read through that and say, you know, there are places where he says, I command you or I tell you to do so. And so here it's just kind of an urge. And so I'm just going to, I'm just going to skip over this a little bit. I'm going to treat this like one of these things where Paul is just writing and saying, you know, this is a good idea if you have time, potentially incorporate this if you don't find something better to do. I know you. Some of you guys are nitpicky. You circled urge. Really big letters. Then you bumped your spouse and said, look, it's urge. Flip over to Philemon. Recognize Paul comes from a decidedly different position than we do. He is an apostle. He has seen the risen Lord. So when Paul writes and he uses the word urge, he's not giving them an option. This is just a nice way of saying do this. Look how he uses the word urge. Here translated appeal, Philemon 1, 8 and 9. Paul says, accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, he can say do it. He can say do it. Yet for love's sake, I prefer what? To appeal to you. It's the same word that's rendered here as urge. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner for Christ also, I, what, verse 10, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus. 
when Paul writes this, he's not setting down good suggestions that will over, overall, if incorporated, benefit your life. Don't read this and say, Paul is urging me to do something. If I can find time for it, perhaps I might set aside two or three days to incorporate these things in my life. Read this with this understanding. He could command you, he's being kind. Paul is effectively saying, do this, please. You get that? You get that? It's where if I went to one of my children, I say, clean your room. I'm not saying clean your room if you want to. I'm giving them some instruction. Paul is telling us spiritually to do something. We have to abide by what Paul tells us here. I want to convince you of this because I don't want you walking out of here saying, this just sounds terrible. Why in the world would I want to incorporate these things to my life? Everybody say, I have to do what the Bible says. Even those of you that said it in your head, you still have to do what the Bible says. Look what he goes on to say. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, do what? I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. Paul's laying it down. He hits us with this right here. And it leaves us reeling with this idea. Okay, he's calling me to walk. He's calling me to exercise something. He's calling on me to live life faithfully. This is what he's saying, this idea of walk. To go through life in a certain way. And that certain way is described here as being worthy of the calling to which you were called. Now let's explore this idea of walk first. Now, most recently in Ephesians, look back in verse 1 of chapter 2. Paul wrote and he told them, he said, you are walking in a certain way. In verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And as we went through and talked about this, you'll remember there were internal, external, and supernatural forces, spiritual forces at work in them producing death. And that was the course, that was the manner of their life. This is in which you once walked. And so each one of us, this is our story. This is our story. So not that some of you are decidedly good people, and then all of a sudden you decided to be a better person and surrender your life to Jesus Christ. No, the way Paul writes it in Ephesians 2, you are all dead. You were dead. You didn't smell particularly good. You didn't do things that were particularly good. You were dead. This is the way that you used to walk. And Paul goes through and he describes this process where God has made the dead person alive in Christ. He's made the dead person alive in Christ. So husband, he made your wife, who formerly was dead, alive in Christ. Wife, your husband, who was formerly dead, he has made him alive in Christ. He has made you one in Christ, alive together. Now look at 2.10, also in Ephesians. He's made you alive. You used to walk in death and destruction, used to walk in these things. But now he says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand for what purpose? That we should walk in them. The former way of existence in our lives in which we once walked was death. We were internally predisposed, externally affected, and supernaturally directed to walk in death. Christ changed us, he made us alive, or God made us alive in Christ And now he calls us to walk in what Paul says in Ephesians 2.10 are characterized as good deeds. Good deeds. But here, it's not these deeds we're looking at, but it's this overall 
kind of what makes you up, what, how people refer to you. And Paul says it here. He says it must be in a worthy manner. And he attaches it to something. He attaches it to something. Look what he says. It's worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Well, what is this, what is this calling to which you've been called? Well, look back at 113. Like I said, we're going to do some finger dancing. 113. He says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So we begin to get this idea that the, the, the thing to which we've been called is unification in Christ. You've been called into salvation. He called you from being dead. He called you from darkness. He invited you to come into light, and you were saved. Amen? Amen, you were saved. Now, Paul, he, he, he kind of explains this a little bit more in 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 9. You can mark these down and go back and look at them a little bit uh, later, but let me read it for you. 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 9, he says, I give thanks to my God always for you. Because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you are enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. Paul's saying, look, God has done an amazing work in you. He's given you knowledge to praise him. He has given you speech to sing of his magnificent grace. He's done these things in you. Now look verse 6. He says, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Paul is telling these Corinthians, we heard you were saved. We went and talked to you and we found out that it is true. God's done a work of regeneration, renewing in you. Verse 7. So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who will sustain you to the end, guiltless, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is telling them that there is something for which they are waiting. That what they are waiting for is the second coming of Christ. And that God will preserve them. He will maintain them. What does he say here? Guiltless. That they will be seen as guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9. God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship, into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The thing to which you have been called is not a better life. The thing to which you have been called is not a better life. The thing to which you have been called is not a life free of suffering. This is unfortunately bad news for some of you this morning. Some of you have been told that if you surrender your life to Christ, that everything is going to be so much better for you. What you have been told is a gospel of life enhancement. That he's going to come in and everything's going to be so much better for you. He's going to come into your life in salvation. He does make things amazingly better for you. You were dead and he made you alive. The gospel is not about life enhancement. It is about life saving. What Paul is giving us this indication here is that we are to walk in a worthy manner of this life-saving gospel which has made those people that were formerly dead alive. That's what the gospel is. God created you. He sent his son to die for you. You believed in this and he will preserve you until the end. This is the gospel. And what we're called to do is to manifest, to live out the realities of the gospel in everyday life. You're called to live out the mandates of the gospel in your marital relationship. You're called to live out the mandates of the gospel as you respond to your parents, as you respond to your friends, as you respond to this jerk that almost ran you over in the Chick-fil-A parking lot. 
Like, this was my life this week. I almost got hit by a car. I'm walking through the Chick-fil-A parking lot, kind of bebopping along. It's one of the fifth times I've gone to Sprint that day, and this car just flies back at me, flies back at me, and I jumped out of the way of the car. In the midst of that reality, you know what my flesh wanted to do? I wanted to bless the socks off this guy. I saw my flesh was crying out. I was like, Once I get over that, what he's calling us to do is live lives worthy of the gospel. It's so easy to do on Sunday morning in the midst of this worship service, right? You've got distractions. You're praying that God would bind these things from you. You have work trying to come in. You have difficulties with your marriage. You and your wife are trying to sit especially close. And the husbands, you're hoping that she's forgiving you for whatever it is by the end of the service. I hope Matt says something about forgiving people. We're going to get there. The gospel, it, it, it mandates something of us. It requires that we walk in a manner worthy. And so it's requiring this repeated process of introspection, looking internally, and then recognizing our hearts are decidedly wicked. They will steer us away. And so calling other people around us and saying to your spouse, do you see this in me? Do you see the gospel in me? Going to your friends, going to your pastors, going to the people around you in your Sunday school class or life group and saying, do you see the gospel in my life? Would you say that I'm walking in a manner worthy of the gospel? That is a dangerous question, my friend. That's a dangerous question because so many of us, the response we're going to get back is this polite what exactly do you mean by worthy? What exactly do you mean by worthy? Let me go ahead and answer that question for you. Let me go ahead and answer the question of you of what it means to walk worthily. Verse 2. Paul starts off, he says, let me just give you these for starters. With all humility and what? Gentleness. With all humility and gentleness. And so we come to this first thing. It says, what does it mean to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel? And Paul says, only this little thing. Be completely humble and completely gentle. And you say, I've got this when I'm asleep. I've got this in my sleep, Paul. For a good five, six hours a night, I own this. I'm making this my own, except for the dream where I'm flying because I recognize I'm exalting myself. But other than those dreams, and those don't happen very often, I've got this idea of being completely humble. Now, some of you say, well, you know, humility, I do a good job of that sometimes. But what does Paul say? He says, all humility. We're getting this picture that what it is to live a life surrendered to Christ is this decidedly difficult enterprise. It's this decidedly difficult way to go about living. It's insanely difficult. And our culture really works against this. What's the joke when you go into a job interview and people say, What's your, what would you say your biggest faults? And you say, you know what? Work too hard, care too much. I mean, even in, in recognizing our faults, we are prideful people. Like, we're driven to pride in associating those things that we've overcome. And so pastors aren't, aren't immune to this. The common question, you know, what happens when you meet another pastor? They say, so how many do you run on a Sunday morning? Now, that's a great question, is it? It'd be like me walking up to you and say, I, I see, uh, see you've got a bank account. How much money do you have in there? How much money do you have in your bank account? It's this, it's this kind of wrong-headed question, Right? So what he says in here, you need to walk with all humility, not having an adequate recognition of who you are. Let's just say for most of us here, we need to have a decidedly lower 
understanding of who we are and our importance, right? All humility and all gentleness. This is really where this gets difficult. Humility. It's this idea of recognizing that you are actually lower than you believe yourselves to be. But this idea of gentleness, responding well to those that attack you, responding well to those that challenge you, responding well just to the pressures of life. Gentleness. Yet we recognize what did Jesus portray over and over and over again. The Son of God, mind you. Like, not not the lowly Judas who would betray him, but the Son of God. Jesus, over and over and over again, portrayed complete and utter humility. Didn't seek to advance himself. God was advancing him. He didn't seek to, to really advance himself. He was incredibly gentle. In fact, he tells us that we are to take on his yoke, right? Look what Paul has once more to say about this idea of, of humility and gentleness. Philippians. Philippians 2, 3. That's what Paul said. He's trying to tell us that we need to have this mind in ours, which is of Christ. And then in 2, 3, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing to glorify yourself. And then he gives us this counter-definition. This is how we are able to understand humility and gentleness. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then in verse 5, we find out that this is the mind of Christ. Humility and gentleness. This is what it is to walk in a worthy manner of the gospel. Look what he goes on to say next. He says, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel is to do so with patience, bearing with one another. Patience. This is this posture that when you are assaulted, you don't respond in kind. This is this posture that when you are offended, you don't respond in kind. Now, this is not the posture that when you are offended, you sit there and you quietly boil and count to ten. And you say, one, I'm going to rip your head off. Two, I'm going to shove it down your throat. Three, and then I'm going to kick you while you're down. Four, I'm really getting worked up. Five, I'm calming down. Six, I can feel my heart again. Seven, I can breathe. Eight, I'm seeing stars. Nine, I need to sit down. Ten, what were we arguing about? That's not it. This idea of patience is responding appropriately to other people, is taking these onslaught, this onslaught from people and letting it produce in you instead peace. And where does that come from? Paul gives us this understanding in Galatians 5, 22 and following that peace is one of those fruits of the Spirit that God supernaturally works this in his people that give themselves pursuing him. Patience is not one of those things that we're able to engender on our own. You want to have a fun week? Pray for patience. Now Paul either gives us a further explanation of what patience is or an additional add-on. But either way, look at it. He says with patience, and then he says bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another in love. Now I told you in the beginning, love is important. In 3.17, Ephesians 3.17, 
Paul gave us this foundation from which we head in every direction. In 3.17, he said, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded, where? Everybody say, in love. This is the posture, this is the place from where all Christians head out and interact with those around us in this particular body and in every other body of Christ that is variously manifested in different churches. It's from this posture, this place, this position of love. Now, bearing with one another. Bearing with one another. This is something that most of us do. We put up, we tolerate one another. This is really what this is. It's putting up with people. Think of someone you don't care for. Don't look at me. Think of someone that you don't care for, that that really, you don't want bad things to happen to them. Maybe just so many good things would quit happening to them, right? Somebody that is maybe in your life, someone you work with is in your job, your kids, teachers, your teacher, your parents, your brother, your sister, your friend, your neighbor, the guy who lets his dog consistently go to the bathroom on your lawn. Think of these people. Think of these people. And Paul writes and he says, Bearing one another. Now, he's talking in the church. He's talking in the church. We have this whole host of people outside the church that we really have problems with. But Paul's talking right here of just in the church. And he says, you need to bear with one another. There are those of you that can't stand other people in this church. You go to different Sunday school classes. You're in different life groups. You park on the other side of the parking lot because you really don't want to see the other people that you may happen to bump into. And for the vast majority of people we know, what do they do? They go to another church. If you find somebody you really despise, can't stand, don't want to be around, what do you do? You go to another church. And there are two things working against that. One, we find when we read through chapter 2, Paul gives us this indication that all of humanity that are saved in Jesus Christ are united in him. So it really doesn't matter which church you go to, you are united in Jesus. The man, the woman you hate, the child you can't stand. You guys are united in Jesus Christ. This is bad for you because you're going to have to work it out now or on into eternity. But what's, what's hard especially is that if we reverence the body, then we have to work out our difficulties and our differences with one another. Because all of us, even though we are members of the church universal, the church universal is manifested, is made visible in the church particular. You can only ever be a part of one of those at a time. And what he tells us here is that we need to bear with those people in love. It's not just this matter of of putting up with people you don't particularly care for. So if if Ken and I disagree, and I'm just going to use you as an example again, and and Ken and I really just can't stand one another, and in fact, I I thought oftentimes if I had roofing tacks, I'd just put them out in front of his truck so he backs over them, I could just clap and say, flat tires again. I would never do that. If that happens to you, it was, you know, we'll talk about it. We'll find the person. But this idea of bearing with one another is so much more than just not visibly manifesting grudges. It can't be the quiet treatment. It can't be this cold shoulder you extend to people. You know why? Because how does he end this phrase? Bearing with one another in love. We just feel all the wind's been let out of our sails. We feel like this thing that we could possibly do, we could bear up with difficult people. Like we could tolerate. My dad was fond of saying over and over again, he said, I could do anything for a month. I could put up with anything for a month. 
I could tolerate anything for a month. There are times that's been tested. But what Paul says here is, these people that you can't stand, that you really want to have no association with, that is not your right. Because these people, you have to love. That is so hard. It would be so much easier if we could just say, look, I just don't want to be around them. I don't want to cause waves. I don't want to make problems. No, like what he's telling us here is you don't have that right. You can't go to another church because you are called to love these people and to work out these difficulties, these differences in your life in as much as it's up to you. So when somebody seeks you out and they say, look, we've got issues. We've got to work this out. What can your response be? Let me pray about that. Let me think about that. No, it's got to be okay. Let's do this. I don't particularly care for you. I'm asking God to change my heart to help me love you. This is what church is. It's walking out the implications of the gospel in our lives. And one of the things Paul tells us here is that if you want to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, then you've got to live around frustrating people and love them. And work through your differences and difficulties together. You do not have, according to this passage, the permission to just cut bait and go elsewhere. Like, that's just not a good reason to leave a church. You don't get along with some of the people you run into. I got news for you. This is life, friend. But what Paul gives us an indication of here is that it doesn't matter if you get along with them. Because what you're called to do is to love them. And that's something so much more difficult than just tolerating. Toleration. Now look what he goes on to say. And this is why I had the deacons up here. Walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Verse 3. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. This takes work. This takes work. It will not happen automatically. It will not happen automatically. It will only happen through work, through giving yourself to this endeavor, through giving yourself to this pursuit, and then asking God supernaturally to do a work. How do you love people you hate? You ask God to change your heart. How do you get people that hate you to love you? You ask God to change their hearts. And where do you do this? You do this in the locus of the church. You do this in an individual church. Because I promise you this, if you find a perfect church, don't join it because you're going to ruin that place. Don't join it because you're going to ruin it. There is no such thing as the perfect church. There is only the greener grass on the other side of the fence. When you get there, you're going to recognize those people have the same problems that you do. And that did have the people at the last church where you were at. Supposing that you were the one without a problem. Paul writes here, he says, you need to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And when we were reading through chapter 2 and working through that together, we recognized that, that God had brought two groups that were formally opposed to one another. He brought two groups together. He'd made these groups, this radical unity, Jews and Gentiles brought together in one flesh. He brought people from diverse backgrounds, people that did not care for one another, people that did not want to be associated with one another, and he made them one in Christ. But what he's giving us an indication of here is that even though we are spiritually united in Christ, now we have to physically manifest this. Does that make sense to you? So it, it, God has saved you. He's done a work of saving you. And he's brought you together from people from a variety of backgrounds. And now what you get to do is spend time 
making that visible. So that when people see you, they see the power of the gospel uniting people of diverse backgrounds and making them one person. When people see a church, what they see and what they notice is that it's, it's just so strange. These people are just occupied with love. It's just so strange. I don't know. They just have this radical unity I just don't understand. And then you have an opportunity to say this unity doesn't come because we're all agree on the same issues, but this unity comes from this work of the Spirit in our lives and our work in submitting ourselves and being humble and being gentle and being patient with one another with one another, and loving one another and working at our differences, bearing up with one another in love. And then you get the chance to say, can I tell you, you can have the same thing too. This is an extension of the gospel. We have to work at maintaining the unity of the spirit. Roy Fish, who was a, an evangelist and professor at Southwestern, said it this way. He said, we are leaky vessels. God has saved us and his spirit comes into us. And in certain sense, we just, it pours out of us. And we have to continue to ask God for this fresh infusion of the spirit not this renewing of salvation, but this renewing of strength so that we can go out and deal with people we otherwise don't care for. We've got to work hard at maintaining the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. This is hard work. This is especially difficult. Most people just don't want to do this. They don't want to work through it. They don't want to pretend like differences and difficulties aren't there. They slowly drop out. They quit coming. Nobody calls. And they just go somewhere else. This has been the story for many of us, for many of our friends. What he gives us this picture of here. If we would give ourselves to worshiping Jesus, he will change our hearts. He will give us desires to love people that are otherwise unlovable. If we give ourselves to this, he will allow himself to be glorified in the church. And one of the ways God is glorified in the church is through manifesting, representing, displaying unity. Displaying unity. So what we have to ask ourselves is what are we seeking to maintain in the church? What are things you say that are kind of non-negotiables that have to be in a church that you would go to? And you begin to run down through this list. And what you're going to find at the end of this list, when you separate them into gospel demands and personal preferences, is that oftentimes for the majority of people, what they end up is with this incredibly descriptive list of preferences. Some of them in the church they're at, some of them not. And what they have on the other side is just love Jesus and submit to him. Well, Paul gives us the indication that this list is decidedly inappropriate. We have to seek to maintain the unity, and to not pursue this. If you think unity in the church is somewhat overrated, then I could say this to you. You also necessarily think that the gospel is somewhat overrated. Because this is what Paul says, that he's brought these two groups that were radically opposed to one another, he's made them one, and now your job is to work to maintain said unity. There's no place for long-term, prolonged disagreement. There's no place for, I just wish they would go somewhere else, or I wish I could go somewhere else, because we are called to maintain unity. Everybody say, I am called to maintain unity. I pray that truth would sink into our hearts. Unity 
it's kind of this amazing thing that almost any truth you can find in Scripture, you can find a perversion of said truth in our culture. Our culture is great at this. They're so much better than we ever hoped to be. Church, for a long time, sought to kind of take things in a culture and twist them and make them to provide this accommodational approach to church. And so if we saw things working in our culture, we'd say, best practices, we've got to have that. Everybody that walks in gets a latte. And then we found out not everybody likes lattes, and we quit doing that. And we said, we want manly men. Everybody that walks in gets black coffee. And what we found out is the pendulum had swung back the other way. People, once again, like lattes. You guys are really hard to figure out. Shouldn't drink so much caffeine either. And so we, we, we went through this deal. And so the church would try and find things that it liked in the culture. and want to bring those things in. And what we find is our culture. Our culture goes in and it says unity is a big deal for Christians. And they want to expand. They want to expand on this idea of unity. And so what they do, what our culture does, is it sets out and it wants to, to, to get rid of any type of personal manifestations or or personal convictions it wants us to all get along and to get along under the umbrella of embracing people for who they are and unity to say anything opposed to the way someone chooses to live their life is is improper at best it's impolite in some places it's illegal to go up and to say somebody and you say can i tell you that my bible tells me that you are dead in your sin that god is a gracious god he sent his son to die for you in your stead he calls you to live in that reality to surrender yourself to him to live in that reality there are places around the world where you just simply can't say this and then there are the the thing coming up in in our situation the thing coming up in our own country our own lives is that we're calling people to let's just agree to disagree Let's just all be unified under what? Well, under the banner that we're all human beings. Paul, through the influence of the Holy Spirit, observed this. This is why he calls us to radical unity. And then you come into verse 4, and he gives us all of these qualifiers for what this unity can be and what this unity can't be. Being unified with other people is tremendous. We can work with a number of folks to accomplish humanitarian relief works. We can work with a number of people to ease poverty, to increase literacy in our community. But what we cannot do is water down the gospel in an accommodational approach to try and achieve what I would call false unity. Those that that put forward this narrative will tell you that, that, that Allah and God are the same, they will tell you that there's, there's really no difference between uh, the Christian God and, and the Muslim God, that it's really just different words. In fact, Allah, if rendered in English, just means God. What we need to be concerned about is this unity. I'm, I, like, I'm sorry, but I read through this, and I find that Christianity is decidedly exclusive. Like, it's not this idea of kind of thumbing your nose at people and saying that, that, that we're so exclusive, we just can't have you in. Are you kidding me? Like, we were dead, too. The gospel is all about finding dead people and making them alive under the banner of one God, Jesus Christ. Amen? Look what Paul says here. Look what Paul says here. He's called people to this amazing display of unity, but he sets bounds on it. He says there is one body. There is one body. He effectively is giving us this understanding that there is is one legitimate place to worship God. And where is that? It is within the body of Christ. Not just Ridgecrest, but within the church universal. 
there is one body, there's one legitimate place to worship God, and that is in the church, in the church universal. He goes on, he says, there is one spirit. There's, there's only one, there's not a multiplicity of spirits, there is one spirit. And look what he says, as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, the whole manner of manifesting and walking in a manner worthy of that to which you were called also shows up here. There is one hope. There is one hope for mankind. There is one hope for the lost sinner. There are not many roads they can walk down. There is only one that leads to the true promise. There is one God, one spirit, one hope. Paul is setting out the very exclusive nature of Christianity. And we find that what he says here is that we have been called into this. We have been led to believe in this hope. Look what he says in verse 5. Paul uttered words that in his day would be seen as treasonous. You can find manuscript evidence that, that one of the things people write, they would say Nero is Lord. He is supreme. He is overall. What does Paul write here? He says there is one Lord. Paul gives us an understanding and indication that to pursue Christ is to pursue him no matter what the ramifications are for us and our well-being. He says there is one Lord, there is one faith, there's one true way to believe. And he says there is one baptism. You read Romans 6, 3, and 4, and you find out that this baptism is in Jesus Christ's name and in his name alone. This isn't a reference to type of baptism, to mode of baptism. This is a reference to the baptism solely founded in Jesus. He goes on, he says, there is one God and Father of them all. In 3, 9 and verse 15, also it said this. We, we, we found that it is God, in verse 9, who created all things. And we find out in verse 15, it is God who has named all things in heaven and on earth. God is over all things. He is the Father of all things. And God has placed Christ in 122 over all things. Look at that, 122. God, it says, and God put Christ over all things. He said, look, right here it says, he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. God is setting himself as up over all things. What Paul gives us an indication of here is that all things find their submission to God. All things are in submission to God. You and I are in submission to God. All those supernatural beings, all those people that seek to war against him, they too will find themselves being submitted, brought under, made to bow down and to worship and declare that there is one God, one King, one Lord. He's over all. And then we get down here to the end. He says he is through all and in all. Look at 110 and 11. It says, as a plan for the fullness of time, God has set out to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, or in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works what? All things according to the counsel of his will. This is our belief. This is the place from where we pursue unity. This is the place from where we pursue loving one another. And the question Paul asks, asks of us today, do you desire to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that he has set before you and the hope that he has given you? This is what it is to be a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ. To put our hand to this, 
to set our feet to this, to set our hearts and our lives to making this a reality. Can I tell you, to do anything else other than pursuing these things is to look at the unity afforded us of being brought into Christ and saying, I don't want it, it's worthless. So the choice before us is clear. As Christians, as believers in Jesus Christ, we have no choice but to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which we've been called. Let me pray for us. Father, this morning, I pray, God, that you would continue to work in our hearts. Help us to submit ourselves to the difficult task of of bearing up for those people, especially those that we don't particularly care for. Reaching out to those people that don't care for us and trying to work with them to advance unity, to advance the gospel in our lives and in theirs and in the lives of those around us. Father, I thank you this morning for giving us an opportunity to worship you. God, I pray that you would help us to follow through with Ephesians 2.10, that those good deeds that you've laid up before us, that you would help us to walk in them. And in walking in those good deeds, God, I pray that you would help us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. With all humility and gentleness. God, that you would help us to come alongside and to bear up those that, that we have difficulties with. That you would help us to love them. Father, help us to embrace the gospel just as your gospel has embraced us and saved us. Help us to live lives that honor you. Pray your spirit would continue to work conviction in our hearts. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.